The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. 200 years ago, May 12th, 1821, the first battle was fought in the Greek War of Independence against the Ottoman Empire at Valtetsi. It was a decisive rebel victory over the Turkish Bey Ruby and his men, 600 dead Ottoman soldiers against 150 dead Greeks. And the commander of the Greeks, Captain Kyriakoulis, is said to have yelled at the retreating Turks and Albanians, Where are you going, you cuckold bay and you Albanian dog? These are neither the villages of Corinth nor the Argive girls. This place is called Valtetsi. Inspiring stuff, you cuckold bay and you Albanian dog. A a lot of leading cultural figures far beyond Greece, Shelley and Lord Byron, uh, were proud Philo-Hellens because they regarded Greece as the early heights of our civilization, and thus its reduction to an Ottoman province was a kind of civilizational humiliation. So they were egging on the Greeks. And perhaps one day in our grim future, brave men will rise up and recover the citadels of the West, and the only differences will be that all our leading cultural figures the pop stars and NFL players and the Instagram influencers will all be rooting for the other side. Well, in much of the world, we've had a year plus of public emergency and people are getting a little weary of it, as you'll know if you read Laura Rosen Cohen in yesterday's edition of Laura's Link. So the good news if you're tired of the 2020 public emergency, is that we have a brand new 2021 public emergency. The governors of Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, Virginia have all declared a state of emergency after over a thousand gas stations all ran dry in the American Southeast. This is after the hack of the New Jersey to Texas pipeline by something called Dark side, dark side. That's who the FBI have uh, identified as the perp in nothing flat. Uh, So it's a good thing they didn't stick John Durham on the case. Otherwise, it would still be a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma cocooned in the Durham report. The Durham report! The Durham report! Sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to get you all worked up there. We have nothing on the John Durham front or on the John Durham back, which is probably getting a nice tan on a beach in the Bahamas right now. So nothing on the Durham report. Got nothing on Durham. What Andrew McCabe was up to is unknowable, but... Dark side, that the FBI is on top of. Dark side is either the supervillain in X-Men 37 or a collective of hackers. Uh, once upon a time, to disable a pipeline, you would have needed teams of commandos in balaclavas parachuting in and affixing plastic explosives to the pipe. Now you can do it with hackers. If not yet, with cuckold bays and Albanian dogs, then certainly you can do it with Macedonian content farmers. Progress! Speaking of laying pipe, we'll have a bit more of that in just a bit on today's show. Oh, and for those who prefer the old state of emergency to the new state of emergency, we haven't done this in a while. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no. 
of emergency to yours. Everybody was Kung Flu fighting. Those stats climbed fast as lightning. In fact, it was a little bit frightening. Chai comes of expert timing. There were funky Chinamen. Funky Wuhan town, they were chopping bats up, they were chowing them down. It's an ancient Chinese dish, and everybody says delish. Chairman Z will book your flight, you'll be in Italy tonight, and everybody starts kung flu spreading. It's at your sister's wedding. It's in Prince Charles's bedding. And ISIS next beheading. There was funky Dr. Tetras from the funky WHO. He said, She is the big boss. I gotta blow. So when we try and take a stab, and if it came out of the lab, you know we're gonna draw a blank. Cause we are totally in the tank, and everybody starts anal swabbing. Just shove that thing a-bobbin' Chargée de frais a-sobbin' Embassy butts a-throbbin' Your score went down the tubes You're home like all the roots Just playing with Rubik's cubes Working on your moves and they're still Kung Fu fighting. Achoo, 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 achoo. Okay, okay, that's enough of that. If I understand the official Chinese position on the coronavirus without end, it's this. The bad news is the U.S. military planted the COVID in the heart of Wuhan, the heartless bastards. But the good news is that, like everything else from iPhones to aspirins, uh, the Chaicoms simply exported all the COVID to every other corner of the world since when they've uh, not had a single case of it. And Wuhan, by comparison with, say, Florida and spring break, is now the biggest party town on the planet. Planet. Following the success of their Wu Flu export drive, Chairman Xi has now revived Chairman Mao's old Super K and is calling himself the helmsman, not just of China, but of Earth. There is one place in China which, unfortunately, thanks to the irresponsibility of everyone else, still has to observe social distancing. That's the top of Mount Everest, which is divided between China and Nepal. There's no actual physical border there. You can just wander back and forth, just like at the American border, but without the same uh, generous uh, Biden-Harris welfare benefits like free transportation and a stay at a mid-market chain hotel. But now uh, China has announced that it will be installing a physical separation barrier at the top of Mount Everest to prevent any Chinese mountaineer being infected by the COVID uh, by some guy from the Nepalese side. Now, the way it works with mountains is that the wide bit is at the bottom and the top is very narrow. Don't ask me why, a bit of a design flaw, maybe Darkseid could hack into Mount Everest and sort that out. So ever since Sir Edmund Hillary's expedition on the eve of the Queen's coronation, usually just go up to the peak for a quick ganders round all 360 degrees and a commemorative photograph. So how it will work with a Trump-esque border barrier up there is anybody's guess. Maybe Nepal could get her Britannic majesty to dispatch a battalion of Gurkhas 
or a battalion of Gurkha. They're small, wiry chaps, but even so, they need a bit of space to wave those cookery knives around. Uh, but I'm reading this official report from the Xinhua News Agency, and I'm thinking the Chaicoms are just laughing at us now, aren't they? Uh, social distancing at the top of Everest, so no hale and hearty Chinaman gets infected by some diseased Yank mountaineer coming up the Nepal side. We have been having some back and forth in the comments about the competing merits of the US, UK, Canadian, French constitution as we all slide off the cliff. And I've been trying to keep it on topic because the topic is that we're all sliding off the cliff. So here's a small example. America has a First Amendment constitutionally guaranteeing free speech in very absolute terms. Britain has nothing quite so absolute, and indeed Canada and Australia both constrain free speech in specific and disgraceful ways. But more important than that is the general sense of a broadly accepted culture of free speech. And that is in steep decline everywhere. For example, I am of the view that COVID escaped from a lab, and I can back that up with sufficient circumstantial evidence. But if I were to go on CNN or NBC News or the BBC or the CBC, I would be cut short and never invited back on those networks again, because suggesting COVID is anything other than an unfortunate pangolin wandering into the Wuhan wet market is totally racist. And yet in China, which is no culture of free speech whatsoever. Chinese scientists are able to publish a document entitled The Unnatural Origin of SARS and New Species of Man-Made Viruses as Genetic Bioweapons. Uh, that's the title. It was published six years ago and was reported this week in the Australian and the Daily Mail with the usual zero interest from CNN, CBS, NBC, etc., etc. What you're not allowed to do in China is criticised Chairman Xi and the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, but that's increasingly true in the US and UK and Canadian media, so no difference there. The only difference is that the Chinese can do a report on man-made viruses as genetic bioweapons. And any US or British scientist inclined to raise the question would quickly find himself cancelled on social media and in need of a new job. In these trying times, we could all use a little diversion. Watch Mark Stein's readings of work by poets from Robert Browning to Robert Service in Stein's Sunday Poems. Whether it's Keats's Ode on a Grecian Urn, John McRae's In Flanders Fields, or James Montgomery's Greenland, Stein brings you the rhyme, rhythm, and reason behind classics and lesser-known delights. Stein's Sunday Poems are available exclusively at www.steinonline.com for members of the Mark Stein Club. View the full catalog at www.steinonline.com poems. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. Peter, a brand new member of the Mark Stein Club from Saginaw, Michigan, writes, uh, oh, Peter, where, first I should say how happy we are to have you join us, uh, join our ranks. Do prowl around and uh, check out our vast archive for all the good stuff uh, that you've uh, missed. Uh, anyway, great to have you with us on this, our fourth birthday. And Peter writes, hey, Mark, I'm writing because in one of your shows, I recall you saying something along the lines of, are you man enough to resist trans madness? It got me thinking about what people living in past eras would think about current social phenomena, such as the gender dysphoria exaltation, which led me to muse over how I've read about declining testosterone levels in the West. A strangely engrossing as it is to discover the civilizational doom we face, I've found myself more engrossed with discovering the precise reasons why. Do you think the erosion of positive masculinity culturally uh, and the lowering of testosterone biologically in the West has contributed? Side note, thank you for sharing a song off your album with us on your last Q&A. It was very entertaining and clever, and I may buy my cat-loving aunt a copy of it. That uh, that was uh, The Cat Came Back, which I think we played on our fourth birthday Q&A last week. Your aunt will love that album, Peter. Feline Groovy, Songs for Swinging Cats, uh, available at Amazon and all good record stores. Oh, wait a minute, there are no good record stores. Amazon's the only store left. Well, you can get it right here. 
at the Stein Store Music Emporium if you don't want to give your dollars or euros or pounds or yen to uh, Jeff Bezos because he's got enough of all of those. Uh, but I take it the testosterone is weighing heavier than my cat album, Peter. As you say, there are declining testosterone levels throughout the West. We've touched on aspects of the male biology crisis over the years. Uh, For example, last year's summer tale for our time, The Prisoner of Windsor, my contemporary inversion of The Prisoner of Zender. Uh, In that tale, there's a scene in which the Prime Minister's mistress discusses the collapse in UK sperm counts. Uh, by over 50%. And a couple of listeners wrote to me to say, did I just make that up? Uh, No, I didn't. Sperm counts have fallen by 52.4%, I believe is the most recent and precise figure, 52.4% since the early 1980s. Uh, Ten years ago, I mentioned it in my best-selling book, After America, with regard to Swedish lesbian couples anxious to conceive. Inga and Britta... Uh, had been trying for a child for ages, but nothing seemed to work. Then it occurred to them this might be because they're both women. So they headed off to the sperm clinic, whereupon the higher-than-usual sapphic demand ran into the problem of male inability to satisfy it. There appears to be, in Sweden, higher-than-usual levels or previous levels of defective sperm. And even for a demographic doom-monger such as myself, you could hardly ask for a more poignant fan de civilisation image than a stampede of broody lesbians uh, stymied only by non-functioning semen, Uh, like some uh, strange dystopian collaboration between Robert Heinlein and uh, Russ Meyer set in a world divided into muff divers and duff donors. Now, I should add a footnote to this. The phenomenon of low testosterone, declining sperm count, increasing testicular cancer, accelerating male infertility has been found in Sweden and the rest of Europe, uh, the UK and the British settler nations, uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and in Japan and the United States. It has not been observed, as the scientists say, elsewhere. No problems with collapsing testosterone or defective sperm in, say, Niger or Afghanistan. No siree. Au contraire. Uh, In the United States, where Peter lives, testosterone levels have declined by an average 1% a year since the 1980s. 40 years at 1% per annum. You do the math. So the American experts tend to put this down to the comorbidities uh, to which Americans are particularly prone. Obesity, diabetes, heart disease. But those are mostly diseases that afflict the middle-aged and elderly. It doesn't explain why young Americans... And indeed, sometimes even grade school Americans are displaying all the same phenomena. And it doesn't explain why the aforementioned Swedes, who are among the healthiest specimens on the planet, are likewise stricken. Uh, Testosterone levels in Denmark have fallen by double digits when you compare a Dane born in the 1960s with a Dane born in the 1920s. So we have a phenomenon that is observable only in the Western world, regardless of whether it's the sporty Nordic types or those sprawled on the uh, sun lounger at their Florida condos. So some experts look to broader cross-cultural phenomena, such as the decline in smoking, uh, which extends from America to Denmark. Nicotine is a powerful aromatase inhibitor. Uh, aromatase arises from uh, estrogen, and in an early draft of The Prisoner of Windsor, uh, a couple of characters speculated about whether increased estrogen in the water supply from women on the pill was causing the drop in male sperm count. So you have increased estrogen and less nicotine, and in this scenario, cigarettes of the good guys. Now they tell us. Peter, I think, is wondering whether the biological decline in maleness has led to the cultural decline in manliness. But I wonder if it's not the other way round. I remember something Camille Pallia, the very incisive cultural critic, said in the 1980s, and that I've never forgotten. It was about AIDS, which was rampant back then, and there was no cure. And she said, nature, 
Let's leave it at that. She didn't want to bring God into it because she's a non-believer. She said nature does not want to divorce sex from procreation. And throughout history, nature has found ways of reminding us of that and of her awesome power. Uh, Syphilis, for example. Uh, Syphilis isn't as long ago as you might think. Uh, Many older listeners uh, will have had grandfathers who were very wary of syphilis, as all men were uh, until uh, comparatively uh, recently. Uh, And uh, Camille Paglia said that given the spectacular increase in promiscuity among male homosexuals in the 60s and 70s, nature had asserted herself as she has done for all time. And Miss Paglia is herself a lesbian, but nevertheless the gay activist went bonkers over what she said. But the thought stayed with me over the decades. It's roughly 60 years since heterosexuals decided to sever sex from procreation to a degree unknown to human history. And within a couple of decades of doing that, we start to see declining fertility rates, declining sperm counts. That's rather... Darwinian, don't you think? Once man had a tail, but he evolved so that he didn't need the tail and the tail fell off. Once man had a sperm count in order to reproduce, but he evolved so that he uh, decided he didn't need to reproduce. And so the sperm count fell off. And eventually, as is nature's want, even the sex drive fell off. A survey a couple of years back found that an American in 2016 had testosterone levels 17 lower than an American in 1987. Like I said, if that keeps up, you do the math. So as in Japan, where they survey this very closely, extraordinary proportions of young'uns reach 30 without ever having gotten to first base. Uh, No interest in dating, no interest in pursuing relationships that will lead uh, to romantic expression. So a so-called sexual revolution uh, that was designed to enable us to shag like Billy Ho has led to less and less shagging. Um, And uh, indeed, uh, less and less of the conditions that would lead to that. I mean... Peter mentions the gender dysphoria. If you're a bloke, why not become a girl? What's the diff? This is going nowhere good very fast. And if it all winds up with hand-to-hand combat in the streets, it's not going to go well for Team West. In 1985, the average 20 to 34-year-old male could apply 117 pounds of force with the grip of his right hand, 117 pounds. By 2016, that was down to 98 pounds. As I wrote a decade ago in After America, we are turning into H.G. Wells's Eloy, but precisely 800,680 years ahead of schedule. That's the only thing dear old H.G. Wells got wrong. Meanwhile, we worry about toxic masculinity. Here he is, the best Prime Minister Canada never had. It's all yours, Andrew. Thank you, Mark. Well, I'm happy that the natural order of the world has been restored with you back in the hosting chair. I was happy to warm it for you. It has, however, been a busy week in Canada. Justin Trudeau's liberals are in the process of vastly expanding the ability of government to control and regulate the Internet. Now, I don't want to get you too bogged down in Canadian acronyms. I actually don't want to get you bogged down in any acronyms. But Canada has, like the FCC in the United States, a government agency responsible for regulating radio and television. Bill C-10, however, a bill from Justin Trudeau's Liberals, would extend that regulation to content on the Internet. The Liberal government is facing accusations it's putting Canadian free speech at risk. The uproar stems from an amendment made to the government's broadcasting bill, that is C-10, and the change would allow the country's broadcasting watchdog to regulate content uploaded to social media. 
The government has claimed that the basis of this bill is just to make the big players like Google and Facebook and Twitter pay their fair share, such as it is. But the bill goes beyond that to determine, in fact, which websites are allowed to exist on the internet in Canada for Canadians. Here are a couple of the ideas put forward by Heritage Minister Stephen Gilbo. If you're a distributor of content in Canada, and obviously, you know, if, if you're a, if, if you're a sm very small media organization, the requirement probably wouldn't be the same as if you're Facebook or, or Google. Um, uh, so there the, 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 the would have to be some proportionality uh, uh, embedded into this. But we, we would ask that they have a license, yes. Could we envision having blocking orders? I mean, that's that, it, maybe um, it's not, uh, you know, it's a, it, it would be, it would likely be a, a last result, last result, uh, nuclear bomb in, in a, in a toolbox of, uh, of mechanism for, for regulator. So Minister Gilbo has been shockingly transparent about what it is that he wants to do. The ability to have a kill switch for websites, licensing for publishers of online content. And one problem is that the Liberals actually took out a very specific exemption in the bill that would have protected user-generated content. From YouTube videos to photos of your cat, all of which would fall under the auspices of government regulation. Now, the government claims it's backtracking a little bit on that, but I'm not convinced. Because after all, they don't see there as being any issue. Whenever any criticisms have been leveled towards them, they just resort to name-calling against the Conservatives. It seems that the Conservative Party is listening to the most extremist element of their party, as they have on very important issues such as climate change or women's rights to choose, Mr. Speaker. This should be regulated, Mr. Speaker. That's what the, what the Conservative member for Saskatoon Grassroot has said. I agree with him, not with the most radical elements of the Conservative Party of Canada. Ah, yes, standing up for free speech is just fake news or pandering to extremists, according to Minister Gilbo. And then there was this exchange in Canada's House of Commons between Conservative Member of Parliament Rachel Harder and Stephen Gilbo. He continues to point to big organizations like Google and Facebook rather than talking about the protection of individual rights and freedoms, which is the question at hand. I find it incredibly hypocritical that the member of Lethbridge, who, given the opportunity, would not hesitate one minute to remove women's right to choose, a right protected under the Charter of Rights and Freedom, but would like us and Canadians to believe that all of a sudden she cares deeply about said charter. I have rarely seen such hypocrisy. If you had trouble following that, I don't blame you. But the rationale seems to be that someone who is against abortion can't stand up for free speech without being a hypocrite. How that works, I have no idea. But Minister Gilbo's and the Liberal government's continued malignment of their opponents as fake news purveyors, conspiracy theorists, extremists, these sorts of things are exactly why they cannot be trusted to regulate the internet. They are not honest actors when it comes to determining the quality of speech and the caliber of discourse. So why on earth should they be given a kill switch for platforms on which people might be leveling those same charges against them? Back to you, Mark. You know, Andrew, by any measure, the regulator, the CRTC, has failed in its existing responsibilities. If it was intended to protect Canadian TV from the dominance of US media culture, it's completely flopped. Uh, the BBC is, whatever you think about it, Britain's leading media voice. The ABC in Australia, likewise, whatever you think about it, is the most powerful institutional voice. But the CBC is unwatched by Canadians. Its national newscast uh, since the retirement of Peter Mansbridge uh, during that terrible sesquicentennial um, in whatever it is, the four years since, the national newscast has declined to a level that cannot justify its public subsidy. Uh, and what, what else has it got? Its drama and sitcoms are pathetic. I mentioned on Rush a couple of months back in response to a query from Mr. Snurdly, who just discovered... <laughs> 
this this streaming service, Acorn TV, it's called, which is basically a streaming service of content from Commonwealth countries uh, with a few Scandinavian police procedurals thrown in. And the UK stuff is always solid and often brilliant. And the Australian content is really uh, very, very good. I've said before that I think Rake is one of the best TV shows of the last uh, 20 years. Uh, but some of the other series are uh, not unimpressive, too. I, I enjoy them. I liked, uh, I think I said I liked Crownies, uh, which is about public prosecutors in Sydney, and its spin off Janet King, which was pretty good, except for the fact that she was a totally unconvincing lesbian. And the whole series went down the toilet when she became a royal commissioner. And some of the New Zealand stuff is rather good too. But the Canadian content is terrible. And don't start me on the Murdoch Mysteries, which are apparently admired for their period detail. I gave up on the Murdoch Mysteries when one show featured the American ambassador to Canada in the late 1890s, right? That's 30 years before there was any US mission in Ottawa and half a century before there was any such thing as a U.S. ambassador to the Dominion of Canada, which position was inaugurated in June of 1943. So solecisms as half-witted as that made the Murdoch mysteries entirely unwatchable to me. But here's my point. The CRTC has done nothing for Canadian drama, Canadian sitcoms, or even comedy in general. Those awful, tedious, eternally rerunning repackages of third-rate stand-up acts from Juste Poirier in Montreal in 1987 or whenever they were shot. Um, Or even, uh, never mind any of that, even just for Canadian newscasts as a feature of Canadian life. Um, So if they can't even do anything for their current responsibilities, why give them the internet? Uh, Well, because this particular responsibility, which would give Canada the most regulated internet uh, in the so-called free world, indeed something that has far more comparison with uh, a Chinese level of internet regulation, maybe that is something that finally this useless regulatory body uh, would uh, would be able would be able to do. Uh, but uh, So if they can't even do anything for their current responsibilities, why give them the internet? Well, why not? It would result in Canada having uh, the most regulated internet anywhere in the so-called free world, indeed a level of regulation far more comparable to what goes on in China. And what will the result be? They will do to that what they've done to everything else. The CRTC is where Canadian culture goes to die. Keep up to date with the past on the 100 Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. Germany caves to allied demands, women are looping the loop, and Charlie Chaplin catches fire. It's May 1921. A hundred years from today. Your world news update. The messy aftermath of the Great War continues. The German Reichstag has voted 221 to 175 to yield to the Allies' ultimatum of May the 5th for immediate disarmament, for trials of German war criminals and for complete acceptance of reparations terms. In London, Berlin's ambassador, Herr Friedrich Stammer, has personally delivered the note of capitulation to Prime Minister Lloyd George, stating the German government has resolved, quote, to carry out without reserve or condition its obligations. Another week, another new Bolshevik party in Prague. Former Social Democrats have decided they are now the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia and have voted 562 to 7 to join the Comintern. Not such a convivial conference for Romanian Bolsheviks as the Socialist Party's convention ended in Bucharest. The interior minister ordered the mass arrest of 51 Romanian communists in favour of allying with the Comintern.
elections have been held for the Italian Chamber of Deputies, Prime Minister Giolitti's National Coalition won 266 seats, while the Socialist Party and the Catholic Party both lost members. Is what the Italians call fascism emerging as a key alternative to Bolshevism? The charismatic leader of this new movement, the former socialist Benito Mussolini, has won election to the Chamber of Deputies and will be a backbencher to watch in the new parliament. In Simla, the Marquess of Reading, Viceroy of India, has met with the Mahatma Gandhi, who in the six years since his return to his native land from South Africa has emerged as the leader of the Indian independence movement. More restive subjects of the Crown. Last week we reported on the inauguration of Northern Ireland, one of two new jurisdictions within the United Kingdom created by the Government of Ireland Act. In the other things are not going so smoothly. In the first elections of the new Parliament of Southern Ireland, all 128 candidates ran unopposed. 124 of them were Sinn Féin, the remaining quartet Independent Unionist Party candidates from Dublin. Half the new Sinn Féin members are currently in jail. The ones who are not have said they will refuse to take their oath of allegiance to the king leaving those four unionists sitting all alone in a very empty legislature. Here's a Japanese man sneaking on with a tune. Just an old second-hand man He'll buy your old days from you. He will take every sorrow of the day that is wonder what the next emperor of Japan makes of King George V's disloyal subjects. The crown prince Hirohito is currently on a visit to Britain, the first member of the Japanese royal family ever to visit the country. He was met at Portsmouth by his British equivalent, the Prince of Wales, the two heirs apparent then took the train to Victoria Station, where they were greeted by the King and the Duke of York. In the United States, the Supreme Court has decided that the so-called capital gains tax, a tax on the increase in value of assets such as property and real estate, is lawful and can be assessed by the U.S. Treasury. The court has also rejected a challenge to the 18th Amendment of the Constitution, prohibiting the manufacture, transport and sale of alcohol. So if it's any consolation, you're now idle still is unlikely to be liable for capital gains tax any time in the future. Uh, Princeton University has honoured a distinguished scientist currently visiting the United States. Albert Einstein is now an honorary doctor of science at Princeton. John Greer Hibben, Woodrow Wilson's successor as Princeton's president, says of Professor Einstein in his structural theory of our ever old, ever new universe, his name stands latest in that illustrious series wherein the other moderns are classified. Mark Maxwell, Sir Isaac Newton and Galileo, and the earliest name is Pythagoras. So today, for his genius and integrity, we who inadequately measure his power salute the new co-
Columbus of science, voyaging through strange seas of thought alone. Telegraph transmissions, telephone connections and railroad signals in North America, Europe and the Southern Hemisphere have all been disrupted by a sunspot 21,000 miles wide and 94,000 miles long. The sunspot caused a geomagnetic storm and an aurora borealis visible across New England. has set a new record for consecutive loops by a woman with a total of 199 loops in one hour 20 minutes over Roosevelt Field near Mineola on Long Island. The New York Times and many other American newspapers reported that the leading photo play comedian Charlie Chaplin had been severely burned during the filming of his latest picture, The Idol Class. According to multiple reporters, an acetylene torch being used in the scene set Mr Chaplin's coat and distinctively baggy trousers alight. In a second, he was aflame from head to toe and suffered severe burns to his face, hands and body. Mr Chaplin has protested that although there was a slight accident with a blowtorch that required him to modify his costume, his agent has exaggerated the incident for publicity and in fact his body, including his face, are entirely unburned. Few newspapers have printed the correction. The acclaimed Italian playwright Luigi Pirandello has had a mixed reaction to his latest work, Six Characters in Search of an Author, at its premiere at the Teatro Valle in Rome. Theatergoers yelled, Incommensurabile, incomprehensible, and manicomio, a madhouse, and a brawl broke out, forcing the playwright and his daughter to duck out via a side door. It is eight decades since a member of the American House of Representatives committed suicide, but William Frankhauser has now joined their number. Elected last November as a Republican in Michigan's 3rd Congressional District, he served for just two months and never set foot in the chamber. Admitted to Dr. Kellogg's famous Battle Creek Sanatorium, Congressman Frankhauser has slashed his throat with a razor and bled to death. He was 58. And that's the way of the world, May 1921. A hundred years from today A hundred years from today Mark Stein's Last Call Barry Mason died a couple of weeks ago, a great British songwriter of the 60s and 70s. We have celebrated his near-operatic masterwork, Delilah, in our Song of the Week spot and in my book, A Song for the Season. I saw the light on the night that I passed by her window I saw the flickering shadows of love on her blind Love Grows Where My Rosemary Goes, I Had the Last Waltz With You, Two Lonely People Together. Les Bicyclettes de Belle Size, a lovely song from a rather odd movie. Barry was proud of his work. He once wandered into the men's room while out for dinner one night, and the burly bloke at the next stall was relieving himself while whistling The Last Waltz. Barry said proudly as he was standing alongside, You know, I wrote that song. 
And the burly bloke next to him stopped whistling and said, No, you didn't. Les Reed wrote that song. And Barry said, Les wrote the tune. I wrote the words. And the burly bloke said, Well, I'm not whistling the bloody words, am I? And went back to his whistling. That's rather a profound point, isn't it? Would the somewhat aggressive men's room acquaintance have been whistling Les Reed's tune in mid-micturition had Barry Mason not invested the tune with the scenario? The last waltz, the two lonely people together, the little girl alone and so shy that made it a hit around the world. It's like the famous story of Mrs. Jerome Kern and Mrs. Oscar Hammerstein at a ladies' luncheon, uh, Eva Kern was introduced with the words, Mrs. Kern's husband wrote Old Man River. And Mrs. Hammerstein interrupted to say, Pardon me, but my husband wrote Old Man River. What Mrs. Kern's husband wrote was, Da, 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 da. La, 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 la. I think of... Barry Mason as a tremendous enthusiast. When he was enthused, he bounded around like Tigger from subject to subject, the words tumbling out. Years ago, he asked me around to his house to talk over an idea he had for a musical about surfing. I don't know why a chap from Wigan in Lancashire should have the urge to do a musical about surfers, but he did. And I couldn't get over the obvious uh, difficulty that when you go to a musical about surfing, at some point you expect to see a fellow on a surfboard riding a wave, uh, and I didn't see any way that you could do that that wouldn't be incredibly expensive and yet simultaneously ridiculous. So I was the gloomy Gus, uh, and absolutely nothing I said dented Barry's enthusiasm by the merest micro iota. It's all over now, nothing left to say, just my tears and the orchestra. one of Barry Mason's massive hits. It started out as a bit of Europop from Italy called Quando Minamoro. Did you ever notice, by the way, that we had more actual multiculturalism back before people started boring on about multiculturalism? I mean, when was the last Italian tune on the Billboard Hot 100? Anyway, Quando Minamoro means when I fall in love, so... Barry Mason couldn't use that title or that theme, obviously, and so instead he turned the Europop into a great howl of pain about a guy who's got such a bad case that whenever he wakes up, he breaks up. And then Barry telephoned Engelbert Humperdinck. And the thing is, even though it's a great howl of pain, paradoxically, I find that if ever I wake up feeling low... All I have to do is bellow this song in the shower and it perks me right up for the day ahead. Go on, give it a go. I can't recommend it enough. I can remember when we walked together Sharing a love I thought would last forever Moonlight to show the way so we can follow Waiting inside her eyes was my tomorrow Then something changed her mind Her kisses told me I had no love in arms to
cannot face this world that's falling down on me. So if you see my girl, please send her home to me. Tell her about my heart that's slowly dying. Say I can't stop myself from. Humperdinck singing a Barry Mason masterpiece from 1968, A Man Without Love. In the ensuing half century, Engelbert has never stopped singing that, and it's always a thrilling moment in his stage act. Rest in peace, Barry. That'll do it for today's show. Thank you again for all your kind words on the fourth anniversary of the Mark Stein Club. Kerry Kerstetter, a first weekend founding member, says this club has been the best investment I have made in decades. Glad to have you along for our fifth year, Kerry. A lot of fans for that video poetry, because as you all know, video poetry is where the big bucks are. We'll have a new one for you in a couple of days. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. reserved.